welcome to Film Suck. Um, we have a special Halloween episode for you. We're going to take on a very scary, if unconventionally so, um, film project, which we'll get to and describe in a minute. But our, our guest is going to be Sophie Pinkham, um, who's an author. Uh, she she her, her book is entitled Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine from 2016 and published through Norton. Um, mm-hmm. We're particularly going to be focusing on an essay she wrote for New Left Forum called Nihilism for Oligarchs. Which deals with this? This you know, it's not just a film. It's it's seven hundred hours of footage edited into many films. It's called Dow, and we're going to get into a description of that in, in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. Sophie um, has her PhD in philosophy and her MA in Slavic languages and literature from Columbia University, and she's also written for many many publications such as uh, the New Yorker, the New York Times, the Nation, and Plus One, many many others. So lots of writing out there to investigate if you get interested in the works of Sophie. Pinkham. But let's first contextualize a little bit this mammoth project that takes a little bit of explaining called Dow. Yeah, let me <laughs> jump in to do it because as a honorary, or not, not honorary, I'm a real Russian. I wanted to say I'm an honorary <laughs> Russian. Well, that's, that's really warped. <laughs> America is <laughs> yeah. having an influence on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a real Russian, so I, I have some real insight into this. But uh, before I want to say, so the, the great piece that um, Sophie wrote, um, Nihilism for Oligarchs, um, for the new Left Review. Uh, we're going to share it with our paid subscribers on Patreon. Otherwise, yeah, I think you have to, there's a paywall in the magazine uh, for, for you to read it, which is, it's worth it. It's really exciting. No one actually has like, it's kind of Sophie's take uh, on the project so far from what I've seen, neither in Russia or, or in the West. But yeah, so, but uh, the project itself, so it's called DAO and uh, we're sort of a bit late, I guess, talking about it because um, uh, it, uh, I think it premiered, um, uh, some of the films premiered already in Berlin Film Festival uh, earlier this year and it was like pretty scandalous. But what it actually is about is um, initially it's supposed to be DAO is a short, is a nickname of a Soviet prominent uh, physicist Lev Landau, uh, who won a Nobel Prize in Physics, I think, in the early 1960s. And so initially, uh, it was supposed to be somewhat like of a kind of biopic, just a fictional film about him. Uh, but it quickly kind of got <laughs> almost spun out of control. Uh, initially, the project started in mid-aughts uh, uh, in Russia. And uh, later, though, I think closer to 2009, 2010, uh, it became completely something else, even though it still was called Dow. It moved to Kharkov, uh, a town in Ukraine, where a lavishly expensive set was built to represent a scientific, a close scientific um, uh, Soviet institute. Sophie refers to it as a theme park that was functional for two or three years where uh, mostly unprofessional and some professional actors lived for all this time. And stated character, yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's exaggeration, but uh, some estimates say that there were almost like up to, for all this year, 10,000 extras mm-hmm. and uh, 400 uh, principal kind of characters totally mm-hmm. in the film and everyone were inhabiting the set, the kind of scientific uh, institute. But it was definitely kind of both a theme park mm-hmm. for <laughs> almost like global elites. Marina Abramovich mm-hmm. was there, Miucha um, Prada, but we'll get into it. Brian Inna took part in the project. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of famous people who stopped by. Some of them collaborated. Some of them even portrayed themselves. Yeah, it's a, it's a basically very elaborate, very expensive project. But in the end, <laughs> to make the story short, uh, no one already believed that it will ever actually something 
comes out of it as a product, <laughs> but eventually did. And uh, so for now, out of supposedly 700 hours of footage that was, by the way, shot by one principal DP, Jürgen Jurgis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a mm, German um cinematographer who worked with Michael Haneke, Volker Schlondorf, pretty prominent cinematographer. He was shooting it uh, mostly just 35 millimeters. So they were going through <laughs> a lot of a lot of film uh, for the project. For now, I think exists, I think, 13 films and there are going to be more edited still. And mm-hmm. that's definitely slow in the making. It's hard to say what it is, exactly it is. Is it like a, are this eventually is it fictional films? Is it docufiction? It's like narratively and genre-wise, it's it's hard to define, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know. You probably have a better way of talking about it. No, I think that's part of the allure, the allure. Is it's supposed to be this in, this mammoth mind blower of a <laughs> of an art project at the mm-hmm. most lavish extreme? So that you're, I think you're the idea is you're not supposed to be able to wrap your head around it easily, and that's what's going to draw you in to watch these films. Kind of, you're not supposed to know, but ultimately, mm. yeah, it's sort of a mix, a mix of everything. And it's uh, something like never been done before. And that's mm. what's alluring, I guess, because it's sort mm. of so ambitious and so weird, supposedly. Guardian referred to it as a, a Stalinist uh, Truman show. Yes. So a lot of people compare it to Synagdahi, New York, Charlie mm. Kaufman film, but like a real, a real life version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a real life version, which seems, yeah, I guess a good comparison to just for people to understand who are not, especially who are not from Russia. So that clearly has the sort of aura of a, an extremely uh, avant-garde, uh, bizarre, hard to explain thing. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll get into actually what it really is, we think. Yeah, we'll let Sophie Pinkham lead us through this bizarre labyrinth. I had a frustrating morning at the DMV, so I'm a little discombobulated. Oh, God, I just did that myself. It was horrible. It was even more horrible than the DMV reputation usually tells you it will be. Oh, it was so bad. But did did you guys schedule like online, though? Yeah, I had to. I had to get an appointment, but then I still had to wait for an eternity. Oh, yeah, well, I kind of had a g- good um, luck with DMV in New York somehow, but, oh, wow. uh, but that might be, just, <laughs> might be just me. I don't know. How is New York, by the way, Sophie? Because I haven't been there since July, and I know it's like kind of plague time again. So. I'm actually not in New York because I moved. This is why I was at the DMV is because I have to get a driver's license, but I can't get a driver's license if I'm accompanied by my boyfriend who has a Dutch license because mm-hmm. so they rejected us because anyway but i live in ithaca new york so oh my god upstate, yeah because he um he has a job at cornell so we uh-huh. up here mm. well that's where nabokov used to teach i wonder if they're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very yeah. nice that's what is that supposed to be the most left-wing town and in- I don't know yeah, for a, a very long distance yeah it makes um it makes new york look reactionary definitely. yeah Definitely. Although, but now like the one of my friends is kind of wrong to say this, but one of my friends calls them the hill people. But but you know, so Ithaca is like ultra ultra left. It's not yeah. even liberal, it's like leftist. <laughs> but then of course it's surrounded by like Trump land. And right now they're getting very riled up, and they're like coming and like posting like Nazi stuff on the yeah. wall. Jesus, like having demonstrations <laughs> is very alarming because it is this sort of pretty tiny enclave of, of right. Of leftism, so it's kind of a weird atmosphere, but 
Yeah, I have a friend in, in a sort of, not nearly as left as Ithaca, but in a small town that's kind of got a, a little bit of left liberalism going, and they're getting parades. They're getting wow. full 100 plus people, white supremacist parades through town. That yeah. <laughs> It's really, it's quite scary. She calls yeah. me every time another one comes through. It's really alarming. Yeah, it is alarming. Where do you yeah. Live? You, li- you live in California? Yeah, I'm in Buffalo, New York. I was in California, in, in the Bay Area, teaching at UC Berkeley for a long time. Oh. But I retired early, and now I'm now I'm in Buffalo where I can afford a house. So. Nice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, anyway, speaking of uh, Trump land. So um, <laughs> I don't know how to start this conversation because I've been interested. I, I know I contacted you even a while back before you, I guess, when you only started writing or thinking about writing the, uh, the piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I wonder if... Um, uh, you can kind of <laughs> introduce how you got interested in the project. Um, well, well, the piece that I wrote was commissioned by the New Left Review. They mm-hmm. asked me to do it because they had heard about it. They're based in the UK. And I think over there it's gotten kind of more press than it has in the United States. Um, so they had heard about it from their headquarters in London and so on. Um, but I had heard about it a long time ago and had been kind of curious about it and interested for some time. Um, I first heard about it because it's been going on since the mid 2000s. Um, And so I heard about it when I was living in Ukraine around Mm -hmm. uh, between 2008 and 2010. Um, And I read Michael Edov's article that was in GQ about it, Mm -hmm. which is still a really interesting article. It's extremely entertaining. Um, And he describes his experience of going to the set and having to change into Soviet underpants, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And, you know, being ordered to never use any word that wouldn't fit in, you know, 1959 Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very intrigued by that article obviously, and was actually particularly intrigued because it was this huge, this huge Russian movie project that was being filmed in Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. Um, and I had been living there and had this sort of long-term interest in, in Ukraine and investment, metaphorical investment in Ukraine, mm-hmm. <laughs> emotional investment in Ukraine. Um, so yeah, so I was eager to write about it. Um, and I had sort of heard bits and pieces um, more recently because it kind of was a bit under the radar for several years. And I think a lot of people sort of began to expect that it would never come to anything, that it had just been this kind of fruitless vanity project that wouldn't produce actual films. Um, But then finally, right before the pandemic started, um, they had this these happenings um, in Paris and in Berlin. It was a, a happening in Paris and just more of a screening in Berlin at the Berlin Film Festival. Um, and mm-hmm. so it was clear that you know, there were these movies. Um, there were a lot of them and they began putting them online. Yeah, I read Edith's article only though recently, even though it was published some like ten or nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, yeah, it, it was kind of insightful. But but you know what I I wonder because um, you probably have some you know some people in common uh, in the kind of film community in Moscow who were. Um, minority of them actually who were extremely critical um, of the films especially when um, Dao and Natasha went into Berlin Film Festival and they tried to sort of like ban it and write this open letter right to the um, what is it the present I guess the president of the festival but uh, how, where do you kind of stand I guess with the project after like many years of hearing about it and also then finally seeing it and like doing your research around how it's been made basically what's your what's your kind of take on this endeavor 
I'm pretty sympathetic to the criticisms of the sort of feminist film critics, the Kimberly Duke, I think it's called, their blog, mm-hmm. um, who wrote that that letter. Um, I don't agree with all of their arguments in the letter about why Dow is bad, um, but I agree that there there are just some blatantly unacceptable practices that have been documented in the making of Dow um, that I think should just as a matter of policy be rejected by film communities. And I especially agree with um, the point that they made that, um, you know, there's so many really blatant ethical violations Mm -hmm. um, that have been alleged in the making of Dow. Um, Not even so much, you know, I think that the question of the sex scenes in Natasha is a little bit more complicated than some of the other ethical problems that I read about that have been sort of alleged in connection with Dow. Um, So the, the central reason that people were so angry about Dow Natasha, which was one of the movies that was screened at the Berlinale, um, is that it has this scene with this guy who was actually an interrogator um, and who served in the KGB, et cetera. And he forces Natasha while she's being interrogated to penetrate herself with a bottle. And it's very disturbing. Um, But the actress who played Natasha said you know, it was consensual. She was willing to do it. She was acting. She could stop at any time. She wasn't coerced. And so I don't necessarily think that, you know, he should, that Hrdinovsky or that the movie should be banned on the basis of that scene, because obviously, you know, that sets a, a possibly alarming precedent. And there is definitely a place for depictions of sexual violence that is, you know, performed and consensual and done in a professional way in film. Um, But there were other things, especially having people perform unsimulated sex scenes when they're blackout drunk, which Mm -hmm. seems to have been something that happened in the filming of Dow um, that are really clearly unacceptable. Um, I didn't love the killing of animals on screen very much. <laughs> yeah, that seems like that should <laughs> should not be happening. Yeah. I, I only watched the what, the brave people and begin mm-hmm. it's framed with a, you know, kind of torture of and then killing of a rat. Which looks very realistic. I mean it yeah. did happen. Yeah. yeah. They were killing the rat. And and yeah. Brave People. So just to put things in context, Brave People is sort of one of the mellow down movies. Yeah, I, I watched that one because you said it might be the it might be the best of of them. Yeah, you it in your article. Um, so I I watched it thinking, okay, I'm going to go for the best of the, of the lot, and we'll see. Um, I, kudos to you. I assume you watched all of these films or a lot of them anyway. How you did it? I'd love to hear. I watched a lot of them. It was a dark time in my life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It was the beginning. It was the beginning of the pandemic. It was uh, in winter. Um, the house was pretty cold. I was just like sitting there in a room under a blanket, <laughs> watching uh, Dow movies alone on the computer because no one would ever consent to watch these movies with me. <laughs> and I almost lost my mind. <laughs> that was my experience watching the Dow movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is something very striking in them. I mean, for me, yeah. as, as sort of a foreigner who has spent who spent a very large amount of time, sometimes in fairly kind of decadent settings in the 2000s and the 2010s in Russia and Ukraine, and I think with a, a sort of type of 
oftentimes with a type of kind of artsy, maybe bohemian type of people who are similar to some of the people who acted in Dao. Um, for me, it was really eerily, eerily familiar, disturbing. I mean, it was partly being alone and during COVID and watching mm-hmm. them. And, um, it was a very particular experience and I'm sure it was very, it was totally different when you went to the screenings in Paris and so on. Um, but it did feel like I was experiencing a level of reality that felt sort of almost frightening and disturbing and kind of transporting. Um, and I found this, I found the sort of conversational scenes much more interesting. I felt, mm-hmm. I felt that the animal killing and the unsimulated sex, especially when it was blatantly pornographic, mm-hmm. um, was, was just not, was just not interesting. It was mm-hmm. just sort of shock value. And I found it quite trite, but some of the conversations I found really intriguing, but, but then sort of on a methodological level, what really bothered me was that I just, I felt that the film itself wasn't clear on what it was about. Is it about the Soviet Union or is it about the idea of the Soviet Union in Russia and perhaps Ukraine of the 2000s and the 2010s? Or is it simply about Russia in the 2000s and 2010s sort of co-processing the legacy of the Soviet Union or what? I don't really feel like it was any of those things. I felt like it was sort of exploiting very sensationalistic ideas about the Soviet Union, um, but not actually bothering to strive for any kind of accuracy or sort of artistic consistency. And so for me, it felt really eerie watching these people because they felt so much like so many people I had spent time with, some, some of them, mm-hmm. not all of them, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, and some people I had encountered, like with the neo-Nazi, who we can talk about separately. Mm-hmm. But um but, you know, obviously I wasn't hanging out in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, which is when this was supposed to be set. And Khodanovsky just invested so much energy in promoting this idea that he was sort of fully recreating the whole sort of sensory experience. And he even made the toilets smell like toilets in the Soviet Union smelled by getting exactly the right cocktail of like cleaning fluids and I don't know, bacteria and, and all of this nonsense. But then ultimately you just blatantly have these people who are just people in Russia and Ukraine in 2008 dressed up in sort of Mm -hmm. Soviet clothes and Mm -hmm. then having sex in a way that's clearly inspired by, you know, the pornographic styles of the 2000s, you know? Um, And so I felt that ultimately it was just really, I don't want to just say unconvincing because obviously historical accuracy isn't necessarily a good in and of itself, but I I found it to not be artistically compelling. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were, there started to be a lot of moments where it repelled me not just with everything that was overtly disgusting or disturbing, mm-hmm. um, but with the sort of anachronisms and and the yeah. lack of consistency. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but you know you know what I'm curious. Uh, sorry if I mean, yeah, uh, you oh, want to say something, but um, basically um, I was trying to I mean recently to read some reviews uh, both of these multi-channel exhibitions in Paris and Berlin and now the movies, and uh, sure there's like both criticism and some people praise the the project. Actually, frequently foreigners, not only in Moscow, liberals for sure love it as well. But one thing I I didn't see anyone 
saying, and you know, Sophie, kind of talking about it, that there was this eerie familiarity for, I guess, people who have lived for some time. And I am from Moscow and grew up around like Bohemian kind of the Sartsy community. Uh, and there is like a certain eerie familiarity about like the, um, I don't know, what is the representation of, <laughs> of life, despite the fact that everyone's dressed in the Soviet costumes of presumably late 30s, 50s, and whatever, 60s. But it was interesting to me, I mean, obviously, people talk about, oh, it's like Stalinist Truman Show, it's definitely kind of shot as a reality TV type of thing. But the, the kind of the only, I don't know, uh, not redeeming qualities about the whole project, there's this weird um, thing that I don't know if Ilya Hrzhanovsky, the director of this all, actually even re- realizes what he did. But to me, it seems that there's a sort of fairly accurate representation of actually sort of the feeling of Russia today to some degree. And the whole just power dynamic base feels kind of real. It, it, that's, that's what feels kind of authentic in some ways, despite the costumes. You know what I mean? The, the eeriness of this experiment feels true. It kind of feels futile and abusive, but it is futile and abusive in many ways it, outside, of, <laughs> outside of Dao, the set. You know, and, uh, and no one like wrote about that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think what really irritates me about the project mm-hmm. is that um, I, I agree with you 100 percent that it, mm-hmm. it the sort of power structures of, of Russia and Ukraine now. And that was why it made me feel so irritated mm-hmm. that you could kind of go around the world and especially around Western Europe and sort of pawn this off as a project about the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. Isn't this exciting? It proves mm-hmm. how horrible totalitarianism is. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, this proves how horrible oligarch culture structures are. <laughs> yeah, right now. Like, how is it all even possible? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you talk at the end of your article about how this is a kind of, you know, uh, Soviet Union porn, the misery porn <laughs> that is very popular, um, mm-hmm. you know, internationally. So it's it's like a sure sell. And certainly that's how it always seems to be. If you read when you're reading about it or reading reviews of it, that's all anyone goes on about is the excitement of the authenticity of how miserable and awful um, the Soviet Union is. So it does seem like that's the that's the hard sell and the guaranteed sell, while something mm-hmm. else that Afghania can know about. But I I don't I don't know. But it seems compelling when I certainly when I read your your piece, um, Sophie, that that yeah, it's it's all about it's really revealing something else that isn't <laughs> <laughs> the, the what's what's being sold to the you know the general pub the western public i guess or maybe it's wider than that i think yeah i think it's the western public but Mm. um yeah and i think it's it's really important to note also that the that dow the films are really only kind of like a small part of the output of dow i think it really was also existing as a theme park as i mentioned in the piece Mm. Um, and it was really a theme park for kind of hipsters and rich people, right? Because I mean, it was happening for many years for, I can't remember exactly, but like six years or something like that, maybe four mm-hmm. years. Um, this place was in operation. Everyone was living there all the time. And they were only filming for a very small part of that time. And so people people would go in there and a lot of them were super, super rich people, right? And mm-hmm. um, sort of the, the cultural elite. Um, yeah, Peter the, Sellers of the opera world was... Go there, Brian Eno was there for a while. I mean, some of the names are Marina extraordinary. Marina took part. Like, there were famous names for yeah. sure. Mucha mm-hmm. Prada. I, re- I don't think it made it into the final piece, but in his interview with um, Ksenia Subchak, Khajanovsky talks about how Mucha Prada went 
the Dow, the Dow <laughs> Institute in Kharkov. And mm-hmm. I guess Ramana Abramovich brought her. And Mucha Prada went in there and she put on the Soviet underwear and the Soviet outfit and mm-hmm. got her hair done with this by the Soviet hairdresser mm-hmm. and, you know, ate the Soviet sausage. That <laughs> three, quote unquote, Soviet rubles. And then according to Khachanovsky, I don't know if it's true or not, but she said something like, you know, my family used to be in the Communist Party. Now I know what a mistake that was. I would never be in the Communist Party. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's yeah. hilarious. But it's yeah. a theme park. It's almost like, and I, then I understand why it could go on for so long, because it was fun for them. There was enough money to spread around, and you almost pay nothing to the you know, sort of <laughs> peasants kind of who engaged totally, in that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think actually in a way, the more interesting comparison is not the Soviet Union because that really was not how the Soviet Union worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many bad things about the Soviet Union, but they didn't have, you know, things like surf orchestras. This is like, yeah. a <laughs> tradition, you know, you just have all of your surfs and they can't go anywhere and <laughs> and you just pay them to dress up in funny costumes and enter no. <laughs> friends for a few years, you know, um, that feels contemporary for sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. But you know what? Um, I'm curious because, again, you lived in Ukraine, so you have probably even more insight on it than, than I do as a Russian. But one of the things that I kind of find disgusting, and I um, definitely heard it from Harzhanovsky in one of the interviews, and it's generally kind of among the liberal Russians, it's almost like an accepted thing. And in the Western Europe and America as well, uh, Soviet Union and uh, I don't know, what is it? Can you refer to it as socialism or whatever? Whatever the system kind of was in place there gets fully equated with Nazi Germany and with fascism. It's very disturbing. And he again said that, oh, uh, what he was actually doing with the project, he it's a very anti-fascist. He, he didn't say an, even anti-Soviet, anti-fascist project. And by mm-hmm. showing uh, by showing that he sort of like wants people to uh, try to, I don't know, stop being that and stop being Soviet and kind of corrupted by that system. This is one of the most disturbing things. And that's clearly works well, again, for the, as I mm-hmm. said, the good sell for the Western audience. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because on one hand, he, Herzhenovsky is clearly subscribing to this, in my, to my mind, pretty absurd and like equation that that you know is promoted by people like in America by people like Timothy Snyder and mm-hmm. and, and maybe they should have a round table <laughs> 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 and communism are exactly the same um, but Krzyzanowski is a little different because of the way he is clearly excited by these things and <laughs> kind of kinky and fun mm-hmm. um, I mean it is it, it's like so you know it's like if you're gonna do kinky history sex cosplay does it really matter if the person who like beats you before sex is dressed as stalin or as hitler you know it's- <laughs> <laughs> that's a better description of it that i ever heard yeah <laughs> yeah like these things are so comical and so cartoonish and mm-hmm. so devoid of any meaningful historical or political analysis that it, it just doesn't matter and you can just play with them as much right. as you want. Like the, the big thing is just getting off at the end, right. Right? which with other, whichever dictator you choose for today. But, um, 
But yeah, um, you do describe, don't you, in your piece that I didn't see it, but at the at the end, it's neo somehow Nazis who come in and destroy the institute. The neo the use of neo Nazis was the thing that really pushed me. Yeah, over the edge. wow. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of people I was troubled by, um, but the presence of the neo Nazis. So in Degeneration, there was this. There's this moment where um, about halfway through, mm-hmm. where this really really charismatic. Um, neo-Nazi who's actually a neo-Nazi who, you know, went around Russia beating people, beating up gay people and filming them being humiliated and things like that and harassing and attacking migrants and so on and so forth. He is sitting there um, sort of asking questions to the American visitor who in real life, I think was Marina Abramovich's assistant or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he's asking him uh, questions about, aren't aren't the blacks uppity in america aren't they always committing crimes just he's just saying horribly mm-hmm. racist things mm-hmm. and it's been very homophobic mm-hmm. um and for me there was this moment where it was like i had a flashback to the worst things that have ever happened to me in eastern europe which were usually you know meeting sort of neo-nazis or people who were insanely unbelievably racist mm-hmm. um and I felt as if I was having those encounters again and sort of felt almost nauseous. And mm-hmm. I didn't know who the guy was as I was watching these films because I decided to watch them without doing research and then do the research afterwards. And mm-hmm. I was just like, this guy is so horribly real, but he's like a real taxi driver who I would meet in St. Petersburg and be like, oh, God, I hope I can escape from this taxi without <laughs> being the victim of a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Um and I looked him up and sort of found out who he who he was. But it's it just it's just so absurd because you know, as I say, as I said in the article, if there was one problem the Soviets yes. not have, it was neo Nazis. The idea that neo Nazis could go rampaging into the Soviet Union and take down a major institute is just like yeah. Wow. The, I mean, it was anti nationalist project. For one thing, you can say about so anti nationalist and kind of anti racist. Lovely. I'm serious about getting rid of neo Nazis. Yeah. Or Nazis, for in their case, and Nazi collaborators. I mean, they just sort of extirpated um, everyone who could even theoretically be suspected of collaborating with the Nazis. So at that point, it was just the whole project had just gone out the window for me in terms of believing that it was associated with the Soviet Union. But it is interesting that. Um, that he then went on to do this Babin Yar project, which I didn't really get into in my NLR piece, but mm-hmm. um, that's a whole story in itself. And so Babin Yar is one of the most um, important, I guess you'd say, um, sort of Holocaust remembrance sites, especially in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the Soviet Union and since it's in Ukraine and because of all the complicated and difficult memory politics there, it, um, it sort of hasn't it hasn't been built up and memorialized in the way that, you know, Auschwitz has. Um, but it was a place of comparable historical significance. And unbelievably, the oligarchs who are funding a new commemoration project <laughs> at the ravine in Kiev, where like 30,000 Jews were killed, cho- mm. have now chosen Khrzhinovsky to <sighs> make a new Holocaust remembrance yeah. center. Um, mm. And there... In a way, it's it's actually really interesting because he pushes this 
stupid conflation of fascism and communism as more or less exactly the same thing to an extreme that anyone can see is unacceptable with like hologram. I don't, I don't remember all the details of his proposal for the center, but like hologram role playing. And so. Right. Role playing for sure. You can be a victim or you can be the um, executioner. Visitors are randomly assigned to different roles and some of them can be the Jews and some of them can be the Ukrainians and some of them can be the Nazis and it doesn't matter because everyone is guilty and anyone can be reduced to the most monstrous acts and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, he, I think he inadvertently kind of reduces that that thesis to nothingness. Um, and yet he has been given this job and all the historians associated with the project have quit in a rage, very understandably. Mm-hmm. And it's really... Yeah, well, he's really pushing it, but he's also kind of like unpunishable because his status, again, is this um, bohemian art elite mm-hmm. in, in, in Russia, which is, he, he might not have that much money, obviously, as oligarchs surrounding him and sponsoring him, but it's a very, really kind of high position to have. I don't know, it seems like he is ultimately, he's like a very kind of respected person. And uh, people who are offended, let's say by Dao, by his project, um, I don't know how to say, just Russian people. I mean, they have no say, ultimately. He'll probably do that um, museum for Baby Yar and, you know, and, and people yeah. are going to be happy, like, you know, Westerners are going to be happy flying in there and playing those, like, <laughs> weird BDSM, like, June on June <laughs> roles. I, I just imagine, just because it's like, that's how Ukrainian Russia feels. It feels like that can happen. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure he'll be able to get away in Ukraine because I mean there there's a different dynamic and there is a feeling that Russians can't come in here and do this I think I think if he's taken down in Ukraine ironically it won't be out of sort of respect for the victims of the Holocaust um, out of a sort of anti-Russian feeling and mm-hmm. longer at the end of sort of Russian interlopers mm-hmm. engaging in civic processes mm-hmm. in Ukraine but um But yeah, it it was wild also watching these movies and doing research for this piece in the U.S. in Mm. 2020. (laughs) I'm like like watching Alison Roman being canceled for whatever it is that she did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Losing her job. And then I'm just watching the Dow movies. Mm -hmm. Um, with the un- made by the uncancelable, uncancelable Khachanovsky and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The that's very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, but and it's interesting that you know, it's not surprising that you know there's not that much sentiment against this kind of behavior in Russia, I guess. Um, but it is a and may, I don't know, maybe it's not surprising that there wasn't that much sentiment against it in France or Berlin mm-hmm. either. Um, but it's a little bit surprising. Like, definitely a lot of his filming practices would be illegal in Berlin or in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wonder, you know, are you are you allowed to just go to any country that sort of doesn't have standards of protection for film workers um, and, you know, film like children being tortured and then mm-hmm. you filmed it in whatever country it is and then you come to Berlin and they're like, great art. Very mm-hmm. daring, very shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I imagine it's how you wrap it and what you wrap it. If it's wrapped into a basically anti-Soviet sentiment, mm-hmm. uh, I, that definitely helps that to make it feel legitimate. If you just torture people somewhere, I don't know, in the Philippines, probably not. Another, another thing that really appeals to people, and it's more trivial, certainly, but but it's the, the that kind of acting 
thrills people in a way that I've never understood. <laughs> the and that gets and it's highlighted in abs, as much as the kind of you know the the sort of anti-Soviet take is the oh my god that actors committed themselves to, to years of living out these roles and it's almost always. Uh-huh presented when they get quotes from, I guess, some of the professional actors. It's a little unclear how many, it seems like the majority are are non-professional actors who are who are brought in to perform mm-hmm. roles, something like maybe that their lives worth. And what one thing suggests that, that if you were a certain kind of laborer, they asked you to do that kind of labor, mm-hmm. kind of typage thing from the old Soviet days. Um, but I mean, it seems like there are, there are a, a, lot of, a lot of professional actors as well. And it just seems like they tend to talk about playing these roles in very, very serious, high-minded terms, that this is like the ultimate in acting. And I think that has a lot of power for, for people, these kinds of like performances. like method, kind of like, right? Yes, method taken to this, yes, to this total extreme. Um, that, that, you know, just, I, it's not like I had a ton of experience in the acting world, but I spent a few years, you know, involved in theatrical productions and friends with actors. And it, that part is what haunted me, <laughs> is watching actors... It seemed to me obviously improving scenes that are very, very lengthy and often having to to repeat the same line over and over while they wait to figure out what the next, you know, <laughs> the next part of the conversation is actually going to be. That seemed very typical of of um, you know when when scenes are kind of maybe broad stroke laid out, but certainly the the actors are the ones coming up with the details of the performance, the details of the dialogue. So for me. It drives me mad. It's, it's 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 exactly a kind of acting style I find tiresome, and and the high-minded self-seriousness has always driven me absolutely bonkers. But I think it has huge appeal um, for people who are into you know a, a certain idea of what acting is and what performance is. This is absolute mm-hmm. catnip for them. So it seems to me that's another form of appeal of this piece. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree, and and I also agree that that's one of the many weaknesses even apart from any sort of offensiveness of how it was done or what it portrays but just one of the weaknesses of of the movies as movies is that you have these endless Mm -hmm. interactions that are just really banal repetitive also Mm -hmm. totally anachronistic because Mm -hmm. people are just sort of using slang and cursing in a way that's very obviously 2008 Mm -hmm. right (laughs) right Right. Yeah, so it's just really, really boring a lot of the time. And yeah, I think a lot of people have, have noticed that. But yeah, it has it has a gimmicky appeal. But, you know, mm-hmm. then they talk about how, oh, I was completely immersed in the world yes. of Stalinism. I was living 1943. It was mm-hmm. I was married in 1943, you know. <laughs> right. One couple one couple did get married on on the set after meeting in the bed and they still say our wedding was in October 1943 or whatever oh. it was. Oh, is it the, 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 porn, uh, the porn actress? Because he yeah. also casted like um, there was a real porn actress there that married a, a real mathematician uh, mm-hmm. because they met on the set, which I found kind of interesting. Very interesting. I was really intrigued by that. Whole They're still process. together. Yeah, me too. I'm kind of enchanted by it. They are together. So that mm-hmm. worked out. <laughs> and also the kind of, what do you call it? The kind of social mobility, social elevator did work for her. <laughs> sort of, even within Soviet Union, whoa, you sort of, she was a real porn actress playing, um, what do you call that? Cafeteria kind of server, like pretty no. low. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so, 
it, that's in, on the film. And then there was a real mathematician because frequently what he did, which is kind of interesting. I mean, the director, he cast real, um, like, um, you know, mathematicians, scientists as scientists. Mm-hmm. So there was a real <laughs> somewhat, I mean, somewhat prominent mathematician there and they did fall in love and they got married. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're still together. And I found, I find it kind of fascinating. Supposedly there are more stories like that. That's just one of the more sort of surprising ones just because of their background. But there are some, I think some kids were born even there. Something mm-hmm. like pretty uh, mind blowing. But at the same time, if you treat it not as a, some great, um, I don't know, film endeavor, but as a reality TV in Soviet costumes. Um, <laughs> so then it, I guess it's not that impressive because it's sort of just reality TV is that people live together and things happen. But he kind of doesn't want to like talking like that because the, the director and all this aura around it is that mm-hmm. it's not just reality TV. It's something like orchestrated and something like grandiose and insightful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of historical accuracy or, or what it actually based on. And the whole Dao thing, I mean... It clearly, in the end, is not even a central piece because there are so many films that don't involve, you know, the character of uh, Lev Landau at all. But um, I, I was just out of curiosity for um, the composer. There's a famous Greek composer who speaks mm-hmm. Russian well. Uh, he, he actually portrays Lev Landau, Theodor Kurenzis. I think actually Western audience probably know him well as, as well. He's sort of considered a genius. It's interesting. So he he sort of looks a little bit like Lev Landau when you look at the pictures, but mostly it seems like the director cast him because he said, so Lev Landau, the physicist, was a genius, and so he needed the genius to play a genius. <laughs> Which is just like, all right, <laughs> all right, yeah, that's ultimate. No, it's not a method. I mean, I found it interesting, something about like, essences right so there's this essence of genius and that mm-hmm. can portray another genius but I, and I watched the film called I think Three Days Dao Three mm-hmm. Days and just to see how, how that works out and I mean that's a, again it's what's what I found interesting I uh, and I watched a few of those movies only two or two and a half is that when sort of you can see interesting people in the shot for that movie is like what hour and a half and more more conventional mm-hmm. you sort of sometimes find it interesting just to watch um the, to watch them improvise but i don't know again you kind of get an insight into his world because he clearly again no one has a script right so he has to fully <laughs> somehow improvise his behavior towards women is just like yeah i bet you bet you get a lot of girls <laughs> With your orchestra, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, like, in provincial Russia, I bet. It's so, so again, it's realistic, right? You sort of act just like yeah, himself. Yeah, I was like, wow, I know so many men who act exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, and then all this stuff about just like, I, like I'm a genius, and that's why I have to like savor the <laughs> spiritual delectability of every <laughs> kind of woman. It's for my art. And if you want to watch uh, me this is my wife, I think it would be like really artistic. <laughs> so grotesquely familiar. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very familiar. That was pretty good casting. Again, I watched him in, in one of the films <laughs> and he in the end is not even that like kind of like central. But yeah, that was interesting. I don't know. I think he's like semi regrets because since then the composer got even more famous and prominent in the world. He's definitely withdrawn himself and like doesn't. Yeah, he regrets he <laughs> taking to, part in this. Yeah, he doesn't want to be too associated. But that three days one, like three days was one of the first ones I watched, mm-hmm. and that one I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like I, I, I 
it horrifying. I found his treatment of the women in it horrifying, mm-hmm. but I thought the women were quite good. But, you know, that's mm-hmm. the one where it was him and then two women who are professional actresses. Mm-hmm. And I think you could really feel that they were professional actresses because even if they weren't working with real scripts, you going back to what Eileen said, you mm-hmm. felt them sort of having real control. You mm-hmm. felt them having actual mm-hmm. acting technique, mm-hmm. which I found very pleasant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, yeah. it makes you appreciate acting <laughs> and a real oh, actor. Yeah. So I know, but yeah, so that one, if anyone doesn't want any gore, uh, <laughs> which probably actually people want gore because why the hell else they want to want to watch it? <laughs> but yes, so the three days doesn't have any of this and it's... yeah. The other, one, the other one that I kind of appreciated partly because there was no gore and partly because it was it was a relatively interesting variation on the sort of professional, non-professional actor format mm-hmm. was, um, what was it called? It was called Nora Mother. And so uh-huh. it's Dow's wife, who's a professional actress, um, with her actual mother. Um, and her actual mother has sort of come from some, I guess, small Ukrainian town to visit her and see how she's living. Mm-hmm. And at first it's, and she's just very much like, you know, a, a grandma type mm-hmm. from a Ukrainian village. Like she feels super, super real um, and is real because <laughs> it's her actual mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but she shows up to sort of check on her daughter. And at first it seems like maybe she'll help her in this nightmare marriage that she's in with this narcissistic monster mm-hmm. of a Greek composer uh, or conductor. But, uh, but then mm-hmm. it turns out that the mother is even more of like a narcissistic psychopath. Than wow. <laughs> and that, that I found scary. Like you could watch, you could watch that movie for Halloween. Like I found it so much more scary to like see the gradual, like gradual emergence of mm-hmm. the psycho mother. than I found it to like watch a kill a pig being slaughtered or like mm-hmm. whatever else you see in the course of Dow. That one I found truly horrifying. And I was like, are they fighting there with a the daughter? I think there's this yeah, physical violence. Were- uh, I don't remember if there's physical violence. It's nothing very serious. It's the violence is primarily emotional, mm-hmm. and she said some really. She says some things to her daughter that are just so horrifying. And the daughter, I thought the daughter was kind of good. She she had an interesting way of conveying her kind of like vulnerability and mm-hmm. defensive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting because that that setup in that movie and sort of the family setup of of Dow's nuclear family sort of mimics the dynamics of how the film was made and then also how the film was received. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have sort of the, the, the cosmopolitan elite, you know, Moscow created mm-hmm. people, but then they go to film in Ukraine because it's cheaper mm-hmm. and, you know, get some because the, the actress, um, the actress who plays Dow's, Dow's wife, she was in these like TV comedy reviews. And she actually, interestingly, one of her main roles was playing opposite, um, I can't remember his real name, but the guy who played the character Vierka Serduchka. Oh, was, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know who that is. Who is this famous um, transvestite performer who was. Who won, Euro, who won Eurovision for Ukraine oh, wow. in like 2009 with his silly songs. And he he's like, the, he's this important Ukrainian cultural figure because um, that character of Yekaty was a huge hit in Ukraine and um, was 
one of the first or maybe the most popular um, sort of pop culture depictions of the linguistic mixture of Ukrainian and Russian, mm-hmm. which is Sturzik, which is very kind of controversial and politicized. Um, so it was very interesting to have her sort of one degree of separation away from Vierka Sidutska. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's this sort of multiple levels of Orientalism also, mm-hmm. and sort of... Um, exploitation according to economic and cultural hierarchies because mm-hmm. you know moscow can exploit ukrainians um and then even above that are sort of the more privileged sort of western european cultural figures mm-hmm. who can sort of flit around russia mm-hmm. or, in, or around ukraine if they choose and sort of get their own orchestras and live mm-hmm. exactly as they please. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I thought that Nora Mother kind of reflects that in an interesting way. Did you watch, by the way, all the six hours of uh, Dow D- Degeneration? Yes. yes, I watched all six hours. Oh, I my like, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, I kind of want to, I want to kind of see it just because of how gory um, supposedly it is, but I don't know. <laughs> like, I almost threw up because it made me feel so stressed out. It was horrible. Is the pig uh, kind of killing there? Like, I think I heard yeah, that. The pig killing is there. The, what upset, no, but what up, really upset me was the neo-Nazi and was when I started to feel this guy to suck. When I realized yeah. that he was real, I mean, maybe it would be different if you already know that he's real, but you feel his realness and you really feel the fear of some of the other performers. Mm. And that was what made me feel just overwhelming anxiety. Cause mm. you start to feel that he truly is threatening, like the gay performance artist guy mm. who's from New York and the women. And then you also see that some of the, the men who are the very familiar characters, some of whom I found kind of likable actually in a, in a way <laughs> reminded me of people I've like been drinking with. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they are become kind of like just they're like shrinking from mm-hmm. him and they see that he's threatening the women and the women mm-hmm. are sort of standing up to the neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. But the, the men are just scared and sort of mm-hmm. averting their eyes. And I just, I, I, you just really feel that the performers do actually feel threatened. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was Marina Abramovich's. Um, assistant did apparently say that he was assaulted by the Nazi. Um, The scene where you don't see him being assaulted, but you see um, some of the other performers sort of trying to defend him. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's really upsetting. It's really upsetting. And it it just gives you this feeling of sort of being trapped with someone really frightening and not having any way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing, I, it's just a coincidence, I guess, considering how many years ago it was really like um, in production. So that neo-Nazi major guy, Tisak, he died since then. Mm-hmm. He's dead. Then there was one of the, definitely a few or one of the most active um, uh, people, I think Alexei Blinov, oh, someone who plays like the scientist, uh, also dead. But there are basically a number of people around the project, I don't want to exaggerate it, who are mm-hmm. definitely dead by now kind of like not being I mean, old. Yeah, because that guy, Alexei Binov, I, I found him weirdly likable. He looks like someone I used to hang out with in Ukraine who is also mm-hmm. now dead. But yeah, he was hired in London. He was based in London. He had some ray gun gallery. But he, yeah, he seems like he was an interesting person. But he died of cancer, and mm. which I started Googling everyone and just spent like weeks mm-hmm. just Googling everyone in the, in, the, in, the, in the project, which was quite interesting. But he um, he had cancer. And so you could see in some of the later films that he looks really bad. 
Mm-hmm. So I think he already had cancer and is kind of slowly dying on screen. Which Probably only helped the film, the kind of the haggard look of Stalin's yeah, Russia, very, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, ultimately, um, uh, I don't know if I'm like exaggerating this. Obviously, we can laugh at the project and be like discerning about it. Uh, it sort of comes easy, I guess, to you and me and I lean to. But overall, it's a very efficient propaganda material, even if people don't suffer through all, I don't know how many hours of all those films that are going to come out of the footage. But it is efficient and it does create, as you say, whatever mutual Prada is so, <laughs> was so uh, impressed, you know, Marina Bramish and all this I heard Monica Bellucci I don't know people in the Berlin Film Festival the global the global mm. art elite was impressed it only like kind of solidifies this you know anti-Soviet sentiment even if uh, there was a lot of horrible practice in Soviet Union obviously but what he does he really like simplifies it and kind of cliche on top of a cliche on top of cliche mm-hmm. but in the end it works because you know the grand scale of this and I find it kind of very disgusting because I think it's in the end it's efficient even if I kind of can laugh at off. No, I, I agree. And I mean, it, it seems like that's becoming just a sort of fully solidified rote sort of commodity mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, if I even dare to say, I feel like mm-hmm. it is in a sense occupying the same cultural zone as, you know, Svetlana Alexeyevich and yeah. all of kind of anti-Soviet writings mm-hmm. um, that sort of don't, you know, that ex- that exclude all of the complexity that mm-hmm. was clearly present in Soviet life. And it's really a pity because there's so much great history that's mm-hmm. about the Soviet Union at this point, And so many different aspects have been explored. And, you know, and there's there are so many cultural artifacts that we can look at. And it's mm-hmm. just it's such a rich field. And it's not to you know, to excuse the Soviet Union to say that, you know, people, for example, had senses of humor in the Soviet Union. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, that's a thing that about Selena Alexeyevich is that you get the sense that no one ever made a joke. Yes. No. <laughs> no one ever wore a color. I mean, yeah. everyone yeah. wore regulation gray and, you know, mold green. <laughs> you know, that's what you yeah. see when you look at Soviet horror show stuff. It's yeah, always- exactly. And like no one was ever sarcastic mm-hmm. and no one just like had fun with their friends and mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> didn't like skip around and <laughs> whatever else. It's so it's so flat and it's so one dimensional and people just eat it up. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And and just for people, for listeners who don't know, Svetlana Alexeyevich is a Belarusian um, prominent writer of mostly nonfiction historical books about Soviet Union who got Nobel Prize, I think, a few years ago, two or three years ago, right, in literature, mm-hmm. yeah. which, yeah, which is very telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and then there are the endless books of like Timothy Snyder and people like that. Mm-hmm. And wait, so actually, it's curious because like so many people live in, I don't know, in New York. Some with literary art circles are kind of fascinated by Alexeyevich and love her. And I and I kind of liked her. The book she she supposedly got the Nobel Prize for time secondhand. But overall, you sort of you're actually pretty critical of her, right? And you lump her almost together. I mean, not exactly with this project and Ilya Harjanovsky, the director, but pretty much the same kind of field, right? That's how you see it. So. Yeah, I mean, she's she's obviously not not the same as as. Him. And he's much worse than her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there is sort of a, a sort of broad cultural field um, of 
And maybe it's not even so much the people who are producing as it is the demand for those cultural productions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this this hunger for movies and for books and so on that kind of prove how bad the Soviet Union was. Mm-hmm. Um, like, why is this still so interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, why yeah. do we- around talking about how the Soviet Union was really, really bad. Um, I mean, it's it's quite far in the past at this point. Obviously, I think it's an extremely interesting area of study, and it's a very rich kind of historiography and so forth and literary studies. There's all kinds of things to talk about. It's not interesting to just talk about how it was really bad, really, Mm -hmm. really bad, like the (laughs) worst. Obviously, the utility of that is to discredit communism and to discredit socialism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. which is something a lot of people are very invested in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Actually, this project specifically, Lya Karzanowski, the so-called director of this, uh, I mean, what he does, it's like it really cheapens the whole Lev Landau history as a physicist. Um, I don't know, was he a good person or bad? doesn't matter because everyone now <laughs> who um, haven't even heard of him before, let's say outside of scientific community, now thinks of him only, and it's true that historically he had sort of like, I guess, was a proponent of an open marriage with his wife. And he wanted her to take lovers as well. And whatever, that was like their private life. And that came to the forefront of whatever was like the Soviet kind of scientific institute slash phys- physicist community w- was all about as if it kind of this, this now it's fully just uh, kind of covered in, in this some kind of sexualized tone. Yeah, it gets folded so into a, to a kind of sexualized horror that really broods over even the even the episodes like the brave, the brave what is it brave people um where there's you know there's not a lot of that there's certainly sex scenes but but you feel in so many scenes that some there's going to be some sort of sexualized abuse (laughs) and i just kept thinking is this what keeps people going you know because when you're really bored and your mind's wandering and and you can't keep your mind focused on like the lurid thrill of wow these actors actually lived you know in in these (laughs) costumes and everything for years that can keep you going for a while but the other thing that that kind of keeps you going through very long dialogue scenes that sometimes aren't that interesting is just a a feeling that seems to brood over the whole piece Mm -hmm. that there's going to be an outburst and it's almost like that defines (laughs) the soviet union that there's always going to be sexualized torture sexualized something always horror show stuff and maybe that's just my impression but i just kept thinking is is it me or are they constantly seeming to indicate that that's about to burst all the time that seems very much part of it to me yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that that's part of the ideological message, but mm-hmm. I think that that's also part of the uh, kind of titillation yes, of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, it helps yeah. sell it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again. I mean, like in a porn movie, you're like, oh my God, this dialogue is really poorly written. <laughs> <laughs> that is like that. But you know what? It's also a bit like, and I think Tinta Brass is actually a much better director because he actually directed it. It's all fictional. Something mm-hmm. like, I don't know if some of you should watch or you are lean, like, some, reminds mm-hmm. me, I don't know, Salon Kitty. I think something like from 1970s uh, movie, you know, this, there's a kind of brothel with uh, <laughs> four Nazi SS commanders where mm-hmm. there were all these women planted. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like prostitutes, but they were supposed to be actually informants, you know, and then things go wrong. Anyway, I'm not going to retell the plot, but it's all about kind of SS uniform and it's sort of like 
slightly BDSM kind of feel to the entire film. And mm -hmm. and that's it. And it's all about, you know, there are a bunch of movies like that in the post-war, not only Germany, but Italy as well. So Tinta Brass is Italian, uh, kind of slightly sexualizing, but also like thinking about the kind of the Nazi experiment. So mm -hmm. I feel like in some ways, I don't know if Rzanowski even thinking about it, I don't know, is he a film buff? But it's definitely someone that's uh, not only equating, I know he does equate for sure openly, Nazi Germany with Soviet Union, but also mm -hmm. tries to like bring the, bring this BDSM element into mm -hmm. the narrative of uh, horrible, horrible, horrible Nazi mm -hmm. Germany, Soviet Union, kind of one, one thing. So I don't know, no one kind of very few people have done it in movies mm. uh, and so that's I guess he stands out that way so he's like a really kind of this weird propagandist uh, neoliberal propagandist kind of par excellence mm -hmm. in a way so I guess that's why also probably rich people oligarchs like, love him you know the mm -hmm. Russian ones mm -hmm. they benefited you know <laughs> from the collapse of the Soviet Union immensely and so mm -hmm. now this is it I don't know even how to interpret it I might be reading too much into it I really like that idea I've never seen this Tinta Brass guys movies Salon Kitty it's called mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the one I remember that's very fun <laughs> yeah that's um, <laughs> about SS kind of sexy things but um, yeah but I think dialogue's definitely much better there you can't compare it, <laughs> compare it to Dao because they're actually someone wrote them I'm looking this up Kitty runs a brothel in Nazi Germany where the <laughs> right. quote unquote relaxed recording devices have been <laughs> a power hungry army official yes exactly Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I don't—I didn't see anyone referring to it. Speaking of Dao, I don't know, but and I don't know even if it's relevant. But that's how I—I I, I haven't watched it in like over a decade. But that's kind of <laughs> the sort of yeah. So you should guys, you should everyone should check it out when watching Dao as well. And you know, before we let you go, unless Eileen have some has some other questions, mm. you know, for me, and again, because I'm obviously closer to this because of my kind of <laughs> Moscow years. Um, so I, I kind of started thinking about this whole phenomenon of this, um, I don't know, Soviet Union and kind of like it's bad and all this like gets successfully exported and, and high demand both in form of the books or movies or anything. But I also was thinking, you know, uh, probably, uh, I don't know if you know personally, uh, this woman, young woman, who created in Moscow somewhat like a, an alternative model agency called Lumpen. Oh, do I say Lumpen or Lumpen in English? I'm not sure. I think it's Lumpen. Uh, Lumpen. Yeah, the word. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what it Lumpen proletariat kind of. But it's just called Lumpen. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, I know she's friends with Ilya, with the director of Dao, with Ilya Herzhanovsky. Her whole thing is extremely successful. She basically had this idea of uh, peaking almost off the street uh, in uh, different pr provincial, mostly provincial towns of Russia or Ukraine, different post-Soviet countries. Uh, this is mostly men, but also now women who are not conventionally model-like at all, but they kind of have this, almost some of them alcohol, fetal syndrome look, some of them look like, <laughs> no, but some of them, truly, some of them look like they're kind of hot, but they're also like, they look criminal. And eventually, basically, she created um, almost like a database um, of these young girls and boys. And um, it, they, it turned out to be so successful that all those uh, big fashion, high fashion um, brands, I, I'm not a big buff in this, but I kind of use these people in their shows in Paris, uh, Fashion Weeks, and all over the world, you know, like Balenciaga, I guess, maybe mm. like other ones as well. And, and this ties together for me with generally with the Dow project as well. And then the just phenomena of like Gosha Rubchinsky been big here, which is this like 80s <laughs> po poverty kind of like 
fashion cl- clothing that people just wore while mm-hmm. being poor in the Soviet Union 1980s. Now it's like cost thousands of dollars and reproduced in slightly probably more expensive, maybe more expensive fabric and is sold and is sold in like in Manhattan and Paris and all that. So I don't know. I, I To me, it's all kind of comes together and that's the most successful experts of Russian culture in general. And it's super, super weird. And it's very... It has the Dao feel. Do you know of those those things of Lumpen Agency? I had not had the pleasure of hearing about that, <laughs> oh, but I have now Googled it and will study it for the rest of the day. <laughs> it's always like struck me as weird, but until I watched Dao, I didn't know what. I thought like, oh, I guess those those young girls and boys are ultimately grateful because they kind of taken out of some of the poverty and kind of like pretty fairly sad uh, life and given this, you know, I don't know, ticket to Paris and definitely they're paid. They're not like just exploited for free. But ultimately it feels very eerie. There's something eerie about this whole operation. You, you can't imagine the fat ending <laughs> and then and their lives. You know, that would be an interesting, you know, autobiography actually. Um, you can't imagine that going wrong. I'm saying sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, you mean like appalling. what can happen... Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know what? I don't know. There are definitely success stories, especially because mm-hmm. not everyone become like the faces of the brands mm-hmm. or constantly working. Probably, definitely not all of them, but definitely there are some success stories. So, I don't know. Who am I to judge? I guess the, the, this Moscow <laughs> kind of bohemian woman ultimately, I guess, helping the people. I don't know, but uh, aesthetically, it's it has this like kind of. It reminds again, me of the absolutely absolutely fabulous Romanian baby episode, actually. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Absolutely Fabulous or that episode, but kind of what it reminds me. Oh, the the fashion for going and getting yourself a Romanian baby that you adopt and and becomes part of your fashion spread in vogue. You've seen Absolutely Fabulous, the British show. Oh, I know. Mocking the fashion industry and PR industries. Anyway, I recommend it. <laughs> You'll recognize it from the from the lumpen example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the difference, I don't know how the Romanian baby thing was. I mean, it's obviously fiction. Well, impoverished, you know, abandoned Romanian orphans and then mm-hmm. became a status symbol to go get one, basically. That circles back perfectly now <laughs> where they like borrow, they borrowed the local Ukrainian orphan babies. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> They do to them. It's not like he tortured them, right? It, I, I think they, I mean, well, judging from what you see in the movie, they, they just, it's almost like they use them as, they just have them lying there and mm-hmm. they them lying. I don't, I don't think he tortured any babies. No, 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 no. Cause that would have been, that probably would have been all over for him and even in Paris. I do think he like rented a bunch of orphans. Mm-hmm. From yeah, orphanage, which is kind of dubious. He also, think, kind of rented some prisoners, you know, it's, mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Anyway, there's like a. It's it's very kind of <laughs> ultimately a Bosnian feel to that. It sort of has this universe <laughs> of horrors, and uh, unfortunately, everyone equates it with how horrible, how how horrible Soviet Union was. Mm, if you don't equate it with that, there's something morbidly interesting in that. Definitely an interesting project. Like I, I spent a lot of time on this on this very long article that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely sort of didn't feel like I wasted my time. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of riveting aspects kind of analytically. I think mm-hmm. it really it really shows a lot about sort of how the culture industry is working right now in mm-hmm. Russia, in relation to Ukraine, in relation to Western Europe, in relation to the U.S. and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And after all, it's Halloween, so this is the best time to watch <laughs> at least some of the Dow movies. It's totally. true. You're looking for offbeat horror. 
<laughs> what would you recommend Sophie like let's say because you're an expert in all those movies like a, as a Halloween special <laughs> okay. I mean Degeneration is definitely the scariest one you could yeah. just watch it all night mm. you'll be scared for many days it's a yeah. true nightmare well if you have six hours on Friday night or Saturday <laughs> night knock yourself out I'll say yeah, or you could screen it on the wall yeah exactly party, exactly <laughs> you can have a masked up party social distancing party <laughs> and have that playing on the wall but that the party Perfect. should be, I think, kind of Nazi slash horrible Soviet Union themed. So someone dressed as Stalin, <laughs> oh, yeah. someone is Nazi. <laughs> right, They're like right. some assassin prostitutes. <laughs> I don't know. There should be some, you know, should enhance the, the, the I think, the experience. The atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I don't know. I mean, do you have, no, sorry, I, like, I, I mostly took all the time. I think, I think we covered it. Once I said, you know, the Romanian baby example, I was all played out. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. This Thank is you, so Sophie. interesting. Fascinating. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you.